Hey, turn with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And I mentioned the last time I was here, about three weeks ago, that we, uh, we talked about that task that we've been given, that what it means to abide, to remain, to stay, and that we as a church, that thing that we've been left with is the task to make disciples of all nations, the taithne. And that's what we do in church. We are here to do that one thing, to glorify God by making disciples of Him. Now, you may remember the name Hernan Cortez. Hernan was the greatest Spanish conquistador uh, of their time, and he was given the greatest honor that any conquistador could ever be given, and that was to go to the Aztec Indians to conquer their tribe and to bring back the world's greatest treasure. Well, 600 years, people have tried to do that, and no one had been able to succeed, because you've got to remember, the Aztec Indians are fighting for their very way of life, for their spouses, they're for fighting for their children, and not just the, the wealth and the gold, but they were fighting for their existence. So for 600 years, no one had been able to do that. In 1519, Cortez landed on the beaches of Veracruz, Mexico, with 500 men, 100 sailors, and 11 ships. And they fanned out as far as you could see from the left to the right. He called his commanding officers to the front. And they're just waiting with great anticipation for these marching orders. Where are they going to flank? What is the plan? How are we going to defeat these Aztec Indians and bring back this treasure that they knew would change life? They'd never have to work again. Their children would be set. They'd have all of the world's greatest pleasures. He looked at his men and he said, burn the boats. So his officers looked around and they said, well, the only boats in the harbor are our boats. He said, that's right. Burn our boats. For if we leave this land today, we will leave on their boats. You see, Cortez knew what many of us don't understand today. The urgency of the moment. You see, every category in spiritual life, in church life, in faith life is down. We as believers are now the minority in America. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not a part of the majority of people in America. We are in a decreasing faith culture. And he wanted for his men to create an urgency, a life or death urgency, that they knew they had no option but to do one thing that they had been sent to do, and that was to finish the mission. I'm convinced the church uh, of two things. One is the modern church member does not understand biblical commitment. We'll say that we love Jesus. We say that we love our church. We say that we love our communities, but most believers in most churches aren't doing anything about either one of those categories. The second thing I believe is true is that most believers do not understand the power or the love of God. Because if we did, it would motivate us to do the things that are uncomfortable. And I want you to know today that it is different when we talk about sharing Jesus with people face to face. It's a different time. But you have got to understand the mission we've been given did not back up with the pandemic. We are to move forward. We have got to find a way, whether it's through social media, whether it's through a technology, or, or with a mask, with your neighbor, walking down the road, you can still have conversations, share your faith, let people know who you are, 
in a non-combative way, and let me emphasize that, that they know you love Jesus and you can lead them to the Lord. I want to share with you three things about our God, about His character, attributes that you've got to know if we're going to accomplish the mission that we talked about last time, which is to make disciples. Turn with me to Psalm 139. We'll start in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me in behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. And that verses one through four, here's what we see. That God knows me and he gets me. He knows everything about me and he still loves me. In this passage here, when he says that he has searched me, what that Hebrew word means is that he has looked intently into this thing. He has peered through so dramatically that he knows everything about you, even the dark parts, and he still loves you. We'll see. God knows my past and my potential, as he does with a guy named Kevin Farr. Kevin was a teenager in my church that came to me one day at 15 years old, his mom and his dad died. His mom was a prostitute, his dad was a drug addict, and that's how they met. That's how he was born. Both of them died the same year of AIDS. Kevin came to me one day, and he said, Scott, I have nothing left. My dad's a drug addict, my mom was a prostitute, they died of AIDS. I feel like I have no option but to be just like them. I go to bed every night feeling like I'll never make it through adulthood. And I reminded Kevin that God is not just the God of your present, he's the God of your future. And the sins, the failures of your family do not dictate the future potential and prosperity and strength and courage and blessing that can be yours if you choose Jesus as Savior and if you choose to walk with him. Another guy named Jeff, he was a young adult in our church. We were at a camp found out that his parents were, were splitting up. He said, man, what do I do? He was contemplating suicide, ready to give up on life, and we discipled him as well. We loved on him and explained to him about his future had very little to do with his mom and dad and their marital status as much as it did with the strength and authority of God and the power of his word and a relationship with Jesus that would give him the courage, the strength, and the plan for his future. And Jeff today is a teaching professor at New Orleans Seminary down in New Orleans. You see, friends, our, God knows us. He knows our failures. He knows our past and our potential, but he also knows our faults and our future. I love the story that I read uh, online not too long ago about this business owner setting up his new flower business. So they, the guy sent um, a, a banner to him through this florist. And the banner was supposed to say, Congratulations on your new location. Well, they get to the opening day. Chamber of Commerce is there. They got the microphone out. They got those giant, ridiculous red scissors that they're going to cut the tape with. And then they unveiled this beautiful banner above the front door that said, Rest in Peace. <laughs> so he was furious to call the force. I mean, what are you doing? You're going to destroy the opening day. It was supposed to say, Congratulations on your new location. The florist said, man, I'm just, I'm just sorry. All I can tell you is that we made a mistake, but I want you to consider this. 
Somewhere, there's a funeral taking place that says congratulations on your new location. <laughs> well, listen, we're all filled with failures, aren't we? We mess up, but it doesn't have to dictate who we are. You see, it's so important for us to remember that God sees everything about us, knows everything about us. He has peered through us. He has viewed everything, even the dark moments, but it doesn't give us an excuse to live a life of disobedience. Some of us in this room, if statistics are correct, many of us in many Christian homes and 40 million other Americans partake in a drug every day. This is destroying our marriages, it's destroying our families and our kids, and it's called pornography. You see, NPR said there's 40 million people. It's a hundred billion with a B as in boy. It's a hundred billion dollar industry that is the greatest pandemic that is in America right now. And so many of us have got caught up into that and it's destroying every fabric. Dr. Johnny Darren once said this, 80% of 15 to seven year olds have had multiple hardcore exposure. The average male's first experience is 10 years old. Judith Reisner, was asked by the Senate to do a uh, brain study to understand why this was so addictive to us. She's the leading brain researcher in the world. She came back and she said that it creates these lasting biochemical memory trails when you view pornography, and it is almost impossible to delete. She said it is the same thing that happens in your brain when you smoke crack cocaine is the same addictive behavior and wrinkle that happens in your brain when you view pornography. It's why it's so devastating to try and get out of. Then three-tenths of one second, it passes from your eye to your brain, creates a lasting structural change in your memory. Friends, listen to me. It's not about your past. It's about your future. But you cannot continue to live in disobedience. You've got to get help, and you've got to move forward. Well, here's what we know. God knows me, and he gets me, even the dark parts of us. Here's the second thing. Look at verse Five and six. You hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me and is high and I cannot attain it. Well, here's the second thing that we know. God's created us to be a victor, not a victim. I was in a grocery store uh, not too long ago. So I, I go through and put my uh, milk and bread, eggs, whatever on the uh, conveyor belt there. And as I normally do, I try to engage them, okay, through a mask. I say, hey, girl, how you, how you doing? And she said, well, under the circumstances, I'm doing pretty good. And I said, well, get up! She just looked at me, because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a context clue guy. So I was, as soon as I walked up, I noticed she had a big cross on her uh, neck. And uh, so I was assuming she was a Christian or believed or at least had some concept of Christian values. So I said, well, are you a Christian? And she said, yes, I am. And I go to such and such Baptist church. I said, well, get up! What are you doing under your circumstances? God did not die on a cross for you to live under circumstances. Get up and move. Live a life that's victorious. Romans 8 tells me that I'm more than a conqueror. Listen, for about three minutes, we had church in the grocery store. It was incredible because of this fact that God didn't create us to be a victor or didn't create us to be a victim. He created us to be a victim or victor. So the hand of, the hand of God, I'll switch that up two or three times today. So the hand of God in this passage is this. Now, if God says something one time in Scripture, 
it's biblical and you can live and you can base your life on it. If he says it 1,265 times, then we probably ought to pay notice, attention to that. Well, here's what it means in the, in the Scripture. When it uses the hand of God, it creates and stain, sustains life. The hand of God executes judgment. The hand of God, John chapter 10, verse 29, is invincible. And the devil can't overthrow or overwhelm the hand of God. He says, nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Well, that hand is important because when God's hand is on you, when it rests on you, that means he's given you authority and that means that he's given you significance. Listen, church, I'm going to share with you what I believe is the most empowering verse in the entire Bible. In Matthew chapter 28, if you've got a pen, I would encourage you to mark this, to underline it, to make a note. If not, write it somewhere where you'll remember this. Because it says here, and we'll remember this, we look at it in verses 19 and 20, and we'll say, oh, well, that's the Great Commission, right? To go and, and to make disciples of all tithe and of all the nations. And, but we forget and we don't pay a lot of attention to that verse that leads into it. Because Jesus says here, what? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So I want you to track with me. If Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and you trust Jesus to be your Savior, and you invite him to be your God, your Savior of your life, and the Spirit of God comes to live in you, then where is all that authority in heaven and earth? That means you have access to all authority of heaven and earth living in you because God didn't give you a spirit to be timid and to be fearful, but to be courageous and to live on top of your circumstances. All authority in heaven and earth lives in you. He did not create you to be a victim. He created you to be a victor. Now, we know that we don't put, put God in, into a box. And um, last time I was here in John chapter 15, one of the issues that comes out when we walk through that passage of Scripture, when you talk about the hand of God and how he directs us and he keeps us and he protects us and he sustains us by that hand and he executes judgment by his hand, is the question, can you walk outside of the hand of God? Can I, as a believer, continue to walk in disobedience and get to a point where God will say, okay, you've lived in continual disobedience for so long. Can, God, can you get to a point where God would pull his hand back and say, let's see how far you get in your strength? I believe John 15 gives us that text. I believe there are other passages that lead to this. I believe that a person can get to a point that God will say, fine, let's see how far you get, and he'll withdraw his hand of blessing and protection. And I believe that may be the scariest verse and concept in the scripture for a believer to get to a point where you're no longer useful to the kingdom in this world. Well, in this passage as well, there one thing that we begin to think about are the reasons that God allows difficult things to happen in our life. And you think about our circumstances and all of the craziness that's happening. Let me give you three reasons this morning that will help you understand why these happen. Why does God allow the suffering? Why does it allow the craziness? We know that God's omniscient. He knows everything that's going on. He's in every place. So why doesn't he stop it, or why doesn't he prevent that? Let me give you three reasons, and here's the first. God will, will use the difficult circumstances to build your character and prepare you for a greater assignment. How many has-been athletes do we have in the building or maybe watching by television? I'm a has-been Coming out of high school, I was top five all-around recruit coming out of Louisiana. It was all state in baseball, basketball, and track, setting records. Thought I was the man. My talent was bigger than my character, and I couldn't handle it. 
Well, in this period of my life, going into my senior year basketball season, thought I was a stud. One game before district, I tore a ligament in my ankle. Everything came crashing down. I finished the season with a cast boot on and played the rest of those games. Played baseball, get to May. Damaged the same ankle, the same ligament in the same place in May. Had to have surgery, had to walk across the stage my senior year with a cap sliding down the side of my face on crutches, trying to figure out how to do all that, looking ridiculous. But I doubted what was going on in my life. And it was the first time in my life that I had to make a decision. Because I had said I trusted Jesus and I said that I believed him, but I had never, up until that point, I had never had to lean on him. And it was at that point where everything was stripped away that, that was important to me. All of my idols were gone. And I had nothing left but the Lord. You see, one of the things that God will do is he'll allow circumstances to build your character and prepare you for a greater future. I love what General Norman Schwarzkopf said. He said, success without adversity is not only empty, it's not possible. And I found that true in my life. Here's the second reason. God allows those difficult things to happen. It's just a consequence of sin. If you live a life of sin, the fruit of your tree is going to be pain and consequence. It's a natural, and they call it the law of the harvest. You're going to reap what you sow, and usually more than what you sow. I remember, um, of course, I, y'all, I've said last time that I came out of 29 years in the local church. So serving at the convention with 3,600 churches and 1.4 million Georgia Baptists, this is the first time I've ever been at the convention. You know, I've always... Looked at the convention as the place that, that ministers go to die, right? And I didn't want to be a, I want to be a part of that until the incredible vision that, that Thomas Hammond shared. I was willing to give up everything and move to Georgia. Well, when I was there, there was a, a student revival. Of course, you know, you can't do a student revival without pizza. So we have a pizza party, you know, 6 o'clock. All, it must have been 125 teenagers came to it. And leading into that, this girl named Heather had come to us and said, listen, uh, I don't want this to be another, just another revival where people get saved and we cry and then Monday morning nothing's the same when we go back to school. She said, I really want to see impact. I want to see somebody get saved that is such a hellion that people look at it and they say, man, only God could have done that. That's what I want to see. So we began to pray. And I said, who are the three biggest reprobates in school? So she and her friends, they named Mark, Seth, and Doug. I said, why don't you pray for them? I said, we got about four months until we get to the revival. Pray every day. So they were getting up 5.30 every morning and praying specifically for these three guys. Gets to the night of the revival, doors open, 100 plus teenagers back there eating pizza, having a blast. About 6.20, Doug, Seth, and Mark walked through the door. Now, you got to understand, they didn't come because they loved Jesus. They come because Heather was a good-looking teenage girl, and there was going to be free pizza. And they figured that's a pretty good mix. So they come, they come sit down, and Heather looks at me, and she's like, her smile's just really big. So we're praying that God will just reach them and would, would do a work in their heart and just change the whole trajectory of their life and their kids and grandkids, and we knew it was a generational thing. So we get finished eating, we're walking up a hallway, and it was a church, a lot of, lot of position like this. So the back was a fellowship hall, and we walk up, and you get to a T where you would take a right to go to the sanctuary, you would take a left to go out to the parking lot. And everybody's coming. They're just taking that right, going to the sanctuary. We get in there and realize that Doug, Mark, and Seth weren't there. They just came to see Heather to eat pizza 
and then they left. They took the left instead of the right. Had a service that night, one of those moments when God shows up, and the invitation lasted longer than the preaching service did. It was just unbelievable what God did uh, and just uh, landmark change in lives. And coming out of that, that night, I talked with Heather and those students, and they were so grateful for what God did for everybody else, but they were heartbroken for Doug, Seth, and Mark. And within three weeks, Mark was dead, dead and Seth and uh, Doug were in jail. You see, they missed their divine appointment with God. And in this place this morning, there's not a single person who's here by accident. If you're watching by broadcast, it's not an accident that you tuned on to here. And God's got a word for you. Maybe it's that you're a believer and it's time for you to do what God's called you to do and be who he's called you to be and make an impact, not just with your children and your spouse, but with everybody who's around you. The ripple effect of a disciple that loves Jesus and is all in and has sacrificed everything that says, God, not only with my mouth do I love you, but with my life I'll serve you. Those are the people that make a difference in the community, and everybody knows those. Well, we, we don't live in the Garden of Eden. That's the third reason that God allows difficult things to happen in our life. And I would say this, if you've ever read Genesis chapter 1, we see that we're made in the image and the likeness of God. Genesis 3 tells us that mankind sinned. Did you know that you don't even look the same way because of the sin in our life and our culture has marred everything. It has changed everything that we do. So God knows us. He loves us. Everything has changed. But you still have a, a decision that you've got to make to walk in obedience to the authority of God even when it is it's uncomfortable. That's why you don't look the way that you do. So here's, a, here's the next part. Look at verses 7 and 8. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. I love this part when it says that he has hedged us in. And what it means is this. Here's the third point. Is that you can't outrun God. Is there anybody that would admit today that there's been a moment in your life when you ran from the Lord? I did. I remember being in middle school, listening to Gideons come to speak. And I've got guys that are Gideons, some of my best friends, still on the planet. But I will tell you that most Gideons are not fireball, enthusiastic, or interesting preachers. So I remember as a middle schooler, sitting right about there, Gideon's up there speaking, he's talking these, these stories about just giving the gospel, putting them in places, and folks reading, just reading the Bible and getting saved. And then 10 years later, they're in a church, they're leading a church, they're preaching, all these incredible stories, right? And I'm sitting there just bored to death as a middle schooler. And just thinking, man, this is the worst. I could, all these things that I could be doing. And the whole time I'm sitting there, the Spirit of God was speaking to my heart and saying, what would it be like to preach the Word of God? What would it be like to serve God every single day? Could God be calling me to ministry? And I sat there and I battled and I would struggle with that. Even through some of the worst circumstances and even messages, God would speak that and I ran middle school and high school. I hurt a lot of people, and I did things, did a lot of things that I'm regretful for during those years. But God has taught us that you can't outrun him. Like Chris, guy that was in Oklahoma, um, 
I was part of a, an evangelistic team. So there was four of us guys. We would travel around on the weekends and we would preach. You didn't have to pay us. We were just trying to find a place to, to preach. And we were in these part-time ministries and uh, we would preach. We'd do small groups. We had big services. We'd do things together. Well, I had the seniors and the young adults. So we were there in this home of one of their church members that really loved the Lord, and she had saturated the house in prayer, and I knew that. So we came in. I just started preaching Jesus the whole time, small group, large group. And there was a couple of those folks that had surrendered their life to the Lord and to ministry. Well, you get to Saturday, and there was one guy in there. His name was Chris. So Chris was six foot five, 300 pounds. It was a Division I scholarship football player, and this would have been in the spring, and he's going to college in the August. Well, he sits there the whole time. Well, I'm just passionately giving him the word, and he would just stare at me. Giant, big old guy, angry face, wouldn't respond, wouldn't look. Get to Saturday afternoon, and finally, I just pulled him aside, and I said, Chris, man, I've been praying for you the, the whole weekend, but I got to tell you, out of all the people here, I mean, it really seems like the Lord is moving, and people are, are understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to walk with him. But I look at your face, and you kind of look like you want to beat me up. And he said, well, I kind of do. So, well, um, let's put, move past that. And um, is there anything that I can do to help you? Because the worst thing would be for you to come to this weekend and leave the same. And he just looked at me, and then he walked off, didn't say anything. I said, okay, that's enough of that. So we're going to the service that night. I'm preaching, man, get up there and preaching a message. I think out of Jonah or something, running from God. We get to the end, get the invitation, and um, so the way I did invitations, listen, we're not going to do the music. I don't want any kind of like convincing anybody. I don't want this deal people coming forward and they're crying and all this just emotional stuff. If you need to make a decision tonight, it's between you and the Lord. And if you need to come down, we'll visit. But if not, I'm not trying to talk you into anything. The whole time I'm praying for Chris, just hoping the Lord will get a hold to his heart. So we had some over here come down and a couple from the middle. And there's four or five to my left that came down, made decisions. And I'm just about to close the invitation. And um, you know what a white knuckle moment is? Have you ever been just under the conviction of the Lord and you're, you're in your pew and you've got that, that, that pew in front of you and the blood goes out of your fingers because you're, you're clenching the pew in front of you so hard? You're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's what was happening to Chris. So he's sitting about right here where this sweet couple is. So I'm, I'm just kind of looking. I see all the blood just, just leaving his knuckles. I see him he's clenching his teeth. I'm just about to close it out. So Chris, all of a sudden, he gets out. He doesn't walk to the front. He runs to the front. So I'm just like, I'm trying to figure out where to escape. Because, like, I didn't know if he was coming to me or after me. Okay? So he comes up there, grabs my hand, you know, just, in, you know, just envelops my whole giant hand. And he said, I don't want to run anymore. He said, Brother Scott, I'm tired of the way I'm living. My parents are jacked up. Everything that I've done seems to have been a disaster this year. I'm about to go to college, and I've been fighting with God for months and months, and I'm not doing it anymore. I'm ready to come to Jesus, but I don't know what to do. So here's what I did. I shared with him the same thing that my dad shared with me when I was 10 years old. He, I said, Chris, Romans 3.23 says that you're a sinner, yeah, but you're not like anybody else. It says that we're all sinners that we have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God, so all of us need a Savior. And you do as well. Do you understand that? And he said, man, of all the people in the world, I know that I'm jacked up. I know that I'm a sinner. You don't have to convince me of that. 
I said, well, we also know that Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life. I said, you know what a wage is? He said, well, uh, I work at the dollar store, so I guess if I work, they give me money, right? That's a wage. I said, yeah. Well, what the Bible's talking about is that you have sinned, so the wage for your sin is physical and spiritual separation from God. It's death. That's what you get from just being you. I said, the good thing about the scripture is it doesn't leave it there. It says the free gift of God is eternal life. Do you know what a gift is? And this is all happening right here, by the way, while the invitation is going on. And he he said, well, I gift like a birthday present? I said, yeah. You know, like, um, you know, Christmas morning, you know, my kids will will get three presents under the the tree. I said, are they going to get a gift because they've been good and they've earned it? Because I can promise you they deserve a spanking and not a gift. He said, yeah, that that makes sense. I said, the free gift means that God has given you something that you didn't earn and you didn't work for it. Jesus paid the price. He did all the payment, and then he offers it to you. I said, but I want want to ask you a question. Chris, what's the the one thing that you've always wanted your whole life, like for Christmas, but you never got it? I said, he's like, man, a mini bike. I've always wanted a mini bike. My mom just always thought, because I'm so big, I'd crush the bike or I'd fall and break my neck or something. I said, well, let's just imagine that they make a mini bike big enough for a six foot five, 300 guy. Let's just imagine they make that. And you come in Christmas morning and it's under the tree and you see it. I said, would you be fired up? He's like, dude, I'd be so fired up. I said, how ridiculous would it be for them to have done everything they needed to put that mini bike under the tree and you looked at it and you're so excited and you walk away and you never unwrap it. You never receive it and you never utilize it. He's like, man, that'd be ignorant. Why would I do that? I said, Chris, that's what you've done with the gift of salvation that God has already offered you. You've got to get to a point where you choose Jesus as your Savior. You ask Him to forgive your sins, and you turn your life over to Him. This isn't just about getting saved and going to heaven. This is about living for Him now. And when God sends you to that college, that God-forsaken University of Oklahoma, and you go there, and you and you on that football team, and you do awesome, and your name's in the paper, that God will give you a platform. And people will say, well, how did you get to this point? How could you be successful? And you can tell them, Jesus saved me. Everything that is about me that's good is because of my Lord. I said, are you willing to make that kind of commitment? He said, yeah. And so here's what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you'll be saved. I said, you, it's got the head part of it. Like, like, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for you and wants to be your Savior? He said, man, I've always believed that. I've never not believed in God. I said, well, here's the problem. It's not enough to believe in your head. You've got to make a decision in your heart. Because for the Greeks, when it says to believe in your heart on something, that's the deepest part of who you are. The deepest place of where you can make a decision was that heart. That's what they're talking about. I said, in that heart, are you willing to make a decision, an all-in, burn-the-ships decision, and follow Jesus? And he said, yes. I said, well, the great news is Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So we kneeled right there in front of that pew, and I prayed with Chris. And he asked Jesus to save him. So cool story. When we left, four of us get in this little old matchbox car driving like six hours back, you know, to where we live. 
See, the door's open to the church, and he comes running out. One of the guys is like, hurry, get out, let's go, because they thought he was coming after us. So we stopped, opened the door. I said, what's going on? He said, man, we took up a love offering because, you know, we, we didn't charge money. We just came for whatever they took up in love offering. I said, I, he said, I, I didn't, didn't have any money to put in. I all had $1, so I was kind of felt stupid to give it. And then I saw y'all leave. I was like, you know what? My life's changed. I want those guys to know. So he said, all I got is $1. So he split the $4 into four pieces and gave each of us a, a piece of a dollar. Because he said, I want you to know that God's changed my life. I'll never be the same. And I want you to, to know that I'm grateful. And I, want you, I always want you to remember Chris from Oklahoma. You see, friends, the God that we serve has called us to be light in a dark world, to do things that are different than everyone else. If you don't do that, then your life is useless in this world and in this time. God has allowed a scenario that is never, that our culture, that our country's never seen, the craziness that's happening all in one moment. And this is the best time to give the gospel, to share with people who you are, to not shrink back, but to be a light in a dark place for the world to see. And know that difficult times are going to come. You're going you're to be a target when that happens. But what I would say to you is that God's plan for you is to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in the future. So press on and do what he's called you to do and be who he's called you to be. If you will, stand with me just a moment. I'm going to pray and I'm going to close this out. Brother Ted's going to come and he's going to give you some instructions for, for how you can respond after this. But I want you to just look in my eyes for a moment because it may be today that God is calling you to burn the boats. What is it that you're holding on to that is your escape clause? What are you holding on to that's keeping you from fully giving your life and your heart to the Lord and allowing Him to use you so that one day somebody would say, that lady or that guy is the reason I'm a believer. That's the person who discipled me, and that's why my kids and my grandkids are different, because that one single person taught me that I was significant and that the authority of God could live in my life as a believer. What is your boat that you may need to burn so that you can follow the Lord wholeheartedly? Maybe you're watching my television or in this place, and maybe you're a Christian, and maybe you're not, you're maybe a good Christian, but maybe today you're not a believer. Maybe you've been doubting that. The most stressful time of my life was when I went through this phase early on in teenage years trying to figure out, because I'd made a decision, but I kept being beat up just thinking, man, I'm not sure if I really am. I'd go to bed on my, at night, and man, I just I would toss in my, my pillow back and forth. And I would wonder, and people, everybody thought I because I was choir boy, and, and I, was, I didn't know what to do. One of the greatest moments of my life was when a guy who just, he just sat down with me, and he talked with me about what it meant to have assurance of my salvation. And he walked through the scriptures, and he told me, do you see fruit in your life? Does your family see fruit in your life? Have you ever heard the Spirit of God speak to you? Did you respond to that? And when we finished... God confirmed as solid as I've ever known him that I was a believer 
and I would never doubt again. So here's the problem. If you're doubting as a believer, you're never going to be ultimately fulfilled or ultimately fulfill your purpose. So how are you going to lead somebody else to the Lord if you're not even sure that you're a believer? Today, if you're doubting in here, we want to talk to you, okay? And Ted will talk you through on how you can respond to that in just a moment. But don't leave this service without making a decision that solidifies who you are and where you're going to go as a believer. It's just like Doug set the mark. You have an opportunity to take a right and head on a path that's going to be God-ordained and blessed or take the left, which is the easier path, and you're going to lose all fruit and all significance and all authority in this life, and no one will ever know that you ever existed. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to be in this beautiful place with these sweet people. May you, Holy Spirit, work and convince and convict us and move us to a point of repentance where we turn from our sin, we turn to you and walk faithfully. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.